The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan for the fans of the Houston Astros. Here's your host, Rob Fontenot. Astros Baseball is brought to you by Ram Shirts. Ram Shirts offers custom printed and embroidered apparel. They offer direct-to-garment printing for small runs and screen printing for larger runs. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Ram Shirts. Go to RamShirts.com for all your custom apparel needs. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. Joining me today is senior writer from Sportico, Barry M. Bloom. Barry, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up and how'd you, how'd you get into sports writing? Is that something you wanted to do as a kid? Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in New York in the Bronx, basically about 10 minute car drive from Yankee stadium. Um, you know, hour and a half on public transportation on the two buses and the, and the subway you had to take to get there. So uh, really under the shadow of Yankee Stadium. And my father took me to my first games in 1960 in the old era of the waning dynasty with Ford and Mantle and Barra and, you know, the whole crew there. And uh, the Yankees won, went to the World Series five years in a row, the first five years I watched baseball. So I thought that was just the way life was going to be for the rest of my life. And I have no (laughs) complaints Grew up as a Yankee fan. I'm still a Yankee fan. I'm probably harder on the Yankees than anybody else because I, but, but because I'm vested so deeply in it for so many years. But like I tell everybody, uh, when I realized that I wasn't going to replace Mantle and center field for the Yankees, I, I had to find another way of getting into sports full time. And even as a, a junior high school kid, I was a pretty good writer. So when I went to high school, I went to Dewitt Clinton High School in the Bronx, which was about 7,000 boys at the time. It had a tremendous journalism program and a great teacher, Ada Charles, who led the department. The newspaper won awards every year. Uh, So I joined the newspaper as a sophomore. The first things I covered were fencing matches and track meets. And then I graduated up to basketball and football, which was a huge thing there. Uh, I was sports editor of the paper in my senior year. When I went to college across the river at Fairleigh Dickinson University in Teaneck, uh, I, I I became sports editor of the newspaper there. Uh, also editor-in-chief, eventually, of the newspaper there. Sports director of the radio station. We went around the country doing play-by-play for uh, the basketball team. Uh, for the two or three years. That was fun. My career could have gone really broken either way. 
could have gone in, broken into radio, could have broken into, into newspapers. Uh, you know, there was still a lot of opportunity at the time. Uh, my first job was a weekly, had a weekly newspaper. I moved to the Bay Area uh, and in San Francisco. And uh, I got a, a job selling advertising, writing copy, editing, writing a sports column for a local weekly in the Bay Area independently owned one of the last independently owned weeklies in the area that got me started i started freelancing for newspapers and magazines all over the country covering all the sports and uh, that's pretty much uh, the tra trajectory my first job uh, was in 1982 i was covered hired by the union by the san diego tribune at the time uh, they were the afternoon paper the union was the morning and i was hired to cover the clippers so hmm. uh, I'm an original San Diego Clipper and I uh, covered them for about a year and a half before they put me on the Padres. And then I did the Padres for 10, 10 some odd years. The papers merged. A lot of people got laid off and uh, you know, basically took buyouts in the same day. 350. Uh, I, I survived. I figured that if I did, if I ever ran into that again, as the newspaper business was uh, was was going electronic, the internet was just starting to come in. Uh, I I needed another outlet, so I went to law school, finished my first year, was moved over to the news side at the at the paper at the combined paper, and did a sports business beat. Really carved out a sports business beat there with. Uh, the expansion of the stadium, the Super Bowls, building of the new ballpark in downtown San Diego. And ultimately, I wound up going to Bloomberg in 1998 for four years as a sports business writer. So I came out of that, was hired at MLB.com and its fledgling stages in 2002, basically to cover the labor movement and uh, steroids and Mm. The Expos moving down to Washington. There was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, very complicated stories at the time that I that I was involved in. And then I just spent 17 years writing a column there, you know, 16, 17 years writing a column covering sports news, covering the commissioner's office. You know, I co covered Bud Sillig's commissionership on a day to day basis. I'm kind of like one of the few people in the country that can cover sports on the field, course, ice, and also from a business standpoint. And at some time, at some points, covering it as a business is more interesting than covering it on the field anymore. So, at this point, I've covered I've covered just about everything. You know, I've I just finished my 42nd World Series uh, with the Astros losing to the Braves down in Houston. Uh, I've covered 11 or 12 Super Bowls, 12 or 13 NBA finals, including this last one with the Bucks and the uh, and, and the Suns. I'm based out here in Phoenix. And, uh, you know, I've covered 12 or 13 Stanley Cup finals. I grew up in New York as well as being a, a Yankee fan. I was a big hockey fan. I'm an original six Ranger fan. So, you know, I was in the garden in 94, writing a piece of sport magazine on the Rangers winning the cup. So I was at game seven, covered game seven in 1994. 
I still go to the garden, look up in the rafters to make sure the banner's there. When I see the Stanley Cup, I look for the 94 team to make sure their names are still engraved on it, that it really did happen because the Rangers have only been to the finals once or ever since. So, you know, it's been a great career. I've covered a lot of major events, a lot of a lot of records. The only thing I haven't covered in baseball really is a perfect game. They've even got a four home run game in there. So it, there's uh, it, it's been a great and storied, you know, 45, 46 year career, you know, that just came out of a great high school journalism teacher who I've always lauded. And I got to go back and see again in her 90s before she died to tell her. Uh, so really, uh, I've been very fortunate. You've also written a couple of books. Uh, one was about Larry Boa, the other about Tony Gwynn. And are you currently working on a project about the 84 era Padres? Yeah, I am. Uh, it, it got curtailed a little bit because of uh, of uh, COVID. You know, so the in-person interviews, we haven't been able to do that for a while. I'm working with Ballard Smith, who was the president of the team. And I was at complete loggerheads with the whole time I covered the team and he was the club president. You know, he was the son-in-law of Joan Croc, the the hamburger heiress whose husband Ray had bought the team. Uh, Ray had pretty much had had a stroke and and died before the the, the 94-84 season even happened. So yeah, that book is still in the process. So, so you've also been married quite a while too, huh? <laughs> yeah, I met my wife uh, on the off day between game three and four of the of the of the eighty four playoffs. So a lot grew out of that. How much uh, difficulty is there, you know, with the marriage? You know, I know you you've. You've been married a long time, so you're an expert at this, but how do you maintain, you know, the marriage with all the traveling you do? Well, I think in this case, you know, uh, my wife, this was my second marriage. I was married the first time in San Francisco and and it, it, it sort of came apart like a lot of marriages might with all the traveling and running around and trying to get my career sorted out and started. Uh, but the second time around, you know, we, you know, we dated for a couple of years. She had a couple of, of little kids when I married her. Uh, they were really big part of the equation. Uh, you know, they grew up, they're my son, they're my daughter. I now have three grandchildren. It's all good. You know, um, it was built into the process. You know, when she met me, I was off traveling, covering the team and, and, and gone for good parts of the year. And she had the kids to take care of. And so it, it really wasn't a stress or, or a strain because we both had our roles and, uh, and, and the whole thing was built around it. If anything, when uh, I was taken off the beat in the early 90s during after the merger and was moved over to the news side, and I remained in sports by doing some magazine writing, some other things that caused more of a strain on the relationship with me being home all the time. 
So the, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I read a uh, story that you wrote during the World Series, and it was titled uh, MLB Managers Lose the Lineup Card as Baker and Snitker Stay Old School. Now, as a as a baseball fan, I didn't really realize that, and you spoke a lot about Dave Roberts from the Dodgers. Like, I didn't realize that most of these managers – don't really have total control of things like the lineup card and who's going to start. So how did this story come about? Well, I mean, it's been something that's bugging me for a while and it really didn't happen overnight. I mean, Sandy Alderson, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and it's obviously now, uh, you know, the president of of the Mets baseball operations, uh, he he came on the scene out of the commissioner's office to join the Padres in 2006 when the 2006, 2007, when Bruce Bochy was managing the team and, uh, you know, he, Kevin Towers, the late Kevin Towers was general manager and, uh, and Alderson was sending lineups down from upstairs to, to Bochy. And they wanted him to play younger players. He liked to play the veterans. Towers would come down, give him the lineups, and Bochy would just throw him in the garbage can. <laughs> and, and Towers told me, look, I tell Bochy, look, Boch, you got to work with me on this. You know, I'm trying to help you. And he was like, tell this to get the hell out of here. I'm not using his lineups. And so ultimately what happened is they made the playoffs in 2006. They lost to the Cardinals in four games. At the end of that season, he had one year to go on his contract. They pretty much made it clear they weren't going to extend him. He was going to be a lame duck manager. And when the Giants fired, Felipe Alou and came along and uh, and asked permission to talk to Bochy, Alderson said, sure. And when, when Sabian, Brian Sabian gave him a three-year contract, he went back to the Padres and Alderson told him, you better take it because I can't tell you we're ever going to give you a three-year contract or that you're going to have a job here at the end of the 2007 season. So, you know, the story, I mean, Bochy went to San Francisco, they won three world series, what they went to the playoffs five or four or five times. The Padres hired Bud Black, who's also terrific. Uh, They went to a wild card playing game in 2007 and lost an extra innings to, to the Cardinals. I mean, to the Rockies and, and have not been back to the playoffs in a non COVID year ever since. In fact, they've had one, one 500, 162 game season since Bochy left the team. So this has been going on for a long time. This is nothing new. And so they wanted, you know, Alderson wanted somebody in place to manage the team with more of an analytic background and more open to analytics and would also work in concert with baseball operations on what to do on the field. And so I don't think that he was as controlling as some of the organizations are today. But if you look at, as I documented in the story, you know, you look at the Yankees with Cashman and Boone, you look at the Dodgers with Friedman and Roberts, Farhan and Kapler with the Giants, you know, uh, it would be interesting to see how Preller and, and, and Bob Melvin now work together 
although Melvin worked for the granddaddy of all this, Billy mm. Bean, who invented the whole system and the whole analytic system. And uh, there were days, I mean, really going back to a wildcard game a few years ago in New York when, you know, he had starters ready to go against the Yankees and, and Billy Bean and the baseball operations department outvoted him to do a bullpen game. It was like one of the first of them in the playoffs. And uh, Liam Hendrickson started the game. Judge hit a home run. The Yankees wound up killing him, 7-2. to two. And Bob did not want to play that as a bullpen game. He wanted to use one of his starters, but he was outvoted. So he's played for the granddaddy of, the, of, of all time with this, with Bean. And Bean is run managers out of there. You know, he, he ran out Howe, Maka, Guerin. You know, Melvin, he's, he's placed less control under, I think, than some of the other managers. Because as he said at the time he hired Melvin, when I asked him about it, he said, well, look, what I'm doing is, it hasn't been working. So I guess I have to make some sort of adjustment. But still, they had him and Forrest and whoever else is involved in the analytic department had a lot of uh, say in what was going on on the field and who played that deck. I mean, it's why when you look at a lineup and, uh, you know, you go, a guy gets, goes four for four against a certain pitcher on a given night, and then you look the next day and you go, why, why the hell isn't this guy in the lineup? They don't play the hot hand. They play what, what, what looks good on paper analytically. And believe me, I think some of these departments now where, you know, because of gambling, you have to have the lineups in so early in the day and submitted to the commissioner's office. They know who's on the field that night for the opposing team. And I swear they run the run, run the game through a computer to see what the variables are. And then they, they write a game plan dictated on the outcome through the computer. And then you wind up in a situation where the great variable is the human element and the managers who are given a little bit of leeway to work within the human element. I think, you know, uh, AJ Hinch was to a certain degree, even though it was very, the Astros were very analytically driven, you know, before everything came down there with the, uh, the sign stealing problems. But I think he was given a lot more leeway to operate a game based on the human element and when he took the job with Lunau, and I know this is a fact because AJ and I are really good friends and we had a cup of coffee as he was in the process, he said he was going to tell Lunau that he wasn't going to take the job if the whole, if everything was going to be dictated by analytics. He had to have some control at some point when you got down to the end to make decisions, you know, on the fly because the game just happened so fast. You know, you sit there, it, the great anomaly to me of baseball is that you know, you can sit there in the press box, in the stands, you know, you have a beer, you talk, you eat, you're looking at another game on the computer at the same time. It seems like it's moving slowly. It's creeping. Uh, you know, there are a lot of rule changes I'm writing about tomorrow that were experimented with in the minor leagues in Arizona Fall League this year that could speed up the pace of the game. But for the managers, that game goes by in the dugout. It, it is so fast. Yeah. I remember talking with Don Mattingly about it, you know, when he was operating, you know, under Ned Coletti and under Ned Coletti's general managership, you know, he w it was kind of old style. 
you know, Dead got out, went out, they drafted, he got them the players. There was some input from the manager on who, what they might need or whatnot. But Ned would put together the team. It wasn't a highly analytic department. And Manningly, coming off of Joe Torrey, would just manage the games. Well, then what happened was, uh, you know, Friedman came in and that all changed. And Manningly decided after one year that he didn't want to do that anymore. And he went to, and he went to Florida. So, you know, but I once asked Manningly, who also is a good friend, and I said, well, what's going on in the dugout? You had Trey Hillman. You've got a great bench coach down there with a lot of managing experience. He had hardly any managing experience at the time. And I said, Do you, don't you listen to your bench coach? And he goes, things are going by so fast in the dugout, Barry. I can't even, you know, <laughs> like anybody. You know, I, I'm just trying to stay ahead of the game. You know, the managers have to stay two or three innings ahead of the game. To, to understand what they're doing at a particular time. And I think what's happened in baseball is, and why it has to be legislated back because it's not going to change, is that managers dictated by their baseball operations department just overmanage the game until, uh, until they kill it. And so you wind up with 14, 15 pitching changes and bullpen games in the World Series because you don't have the uh, the depth on your pitching staff or even in your you know on your bench to be able to do a lot of things so it's a long-winded answer to how i got to that start yeah the uh this situation sort of hurt the dodgers this year right in the playoffs dave roberts you know it, there was something about you know starting Instead of starting one of their really good pitchers, Urias, I mean, I can't even know how to say his name, but they went with the bullpen game because it came from up top. And also, it wasn't his decision to use Scherzer, so he wasn't available. So that kind of hurt them, right? Oh, I think there's no doubt. I mean, I don't, I, I've seen that Friedman won't take responsibility for it subsequently to writing this story. And I did try to talk to Friedman for this story and he blew me off at Dodger stadium. So, I mean, I did give him the opportunity to address all this. And, you know, the, the point of the matter is that yes, in game five up in San Francisco for the NLDS, you know, uh, deciding game, they had Julio Arias, ready he was one of their best pitchers all year he was rested he was supposed to start the game and instead to like screw around with the giants on on the lineup they put on the field they went with two right-handed pitchers in the first two innings before they brought in Urias. and so you know okay you know if, if that's what you want to do instead of pitching one of your best pitchers for six innings in in, in the key game of the season and you're going to play this kind of uh, chessboard baseball, all right, you know, and and Roberts was pretty much hammered about it uh, the day they announced it and before that game, and he basically said, this didn't come from me, it came from a, a hot, way up top. Yeah. And I go, well, well way, way up top, you mean, the, I was teasing him. I said, you know, the owner of the team, Mark Walter, that, he goes, top that tippy top very tippy top <laughs> so it's like 
Yeah, no, that was their call, just like Hendricks was Billy and Baseball Ops call that day for Bob Melvin, who I think will have now be able to deal with A.J. Perler like chicken feed because I didn't get to it in the whole my whole diatribe about how this story came about. It's like he's he had to deal with master of interference in Billy, and now A.J. should be chicken feed in comparison. And, and with the long experience he has as a manager, since Preller's been the manager there, you know, he got rid of Bud before he could even turn around. Then they hired uh, Murphy from the minor leagues to manage for half a year. They never gave him much of a chance, and the team stunk. It was just a continuation of what was going on under Bud Black. And then they had an interview with Roberts that lasted 15 minutes, and they wound up bypassing him after a game, and he wound up going to the Dodgers, which is the best thing in the world that happened to him. And then, you know, you had, uh, you brought in two inexperienced managers in Andy Green and Jace Tingler, who had no respect in the locker room, had never managed at the big league level. Tingler had never managed, period. So, I mean, now you've got an expert manager with 15, 16, 17 years of experience in the major leagues, the last 11 with the A's that that, that Preller is going to have to deal with. But getting back to Roberts, yeah, you know, the, the situation is such that I think over the years they've given him more in-game, you know, they've had such success there that they've had, they've given him more in-game ability to make decisions on the fly. But I still think a lot of it's scripted. And there's no doubt that in that game, they were told, you know, he was told, you're, this is, you're going to use the, these two guys, then you're going to use Urias for four innings. And instead of just like use Urias for five, which he was sailing along, he was pitching well. The only thing he had done was let up a home run, which gave the Giants their only run of the game. It was 1 1. And mm-hmm. now you keep, if you kept him in to pitch the seventh, then if the Dodgers score, you have, you know, Trinan, you have Jensen. You know, you have your bullpen and you've got, you know, uh, Joe Kelly, you've got, they didn't even use him in the game. And that, and essentially, you know, why would you go to Scherzer unless you're in an emergency situation when you know that you're going to go, if you win to go to the national championship series, national league championship series, you're going to need that guy to pitch game one or two. Yeah. But there's just this all in, you know, mentality now. You know, I briefly talked to Dusty about it when I got a chance to talk to him during the World Series. And I go, I've never seen anything like this. And he goes, I haven't either. There's just this all-in mentality now on every game. Every game is a condensed unit in the postseason now. You do whatever you can to win that one game. And then you worry about what you're going to do in game five, six, or seven afterwards. And if it's in an earlier series, then be damned because who knows if you're going to get to the next round. So why worry about that? I mean, it, 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 it there's no, no correlation to anything. You know, I, I told Snitker when he was trying to figure out who was going to be his starter in one of the bullpen games, and he, he didn't make a decision until overnight. He didn't even tell the kid because it was like his first, his first start in the playoffs, even mm-hmm. if he knew it was going to go one inning, it was like, I didn't want him worrying about this overnight. 
And I told him the story about how back in the 1950s when Casey was managing the Yankees and the Yankees were in the World Series perennially, he never told the starting pitcher who was going to be working that day the night before either. He didn't tell the president, tell anybody when the when the pitcher showed up at the stadium and they were all day games, of course, at that time, he would have the ball would be sitting in between his cleats when he got to his locker. And that's when he knew he was starting that World Series game. Mm. And, and in fact, the funny story about it and how I know about this is it was written in Don Larson's book. Don Larson was at, had been shelled in one of the early games of the 1956 World Series. He never thought Casey was going to pitch him again in the series. Before game five, he went out on a bender with Milt Richmond, a, a, a UPI, famous UPI reporter at the time. They did the city. It came to be two, three o'clock in the morning. Milt Richmond said, you know, I got to go home. I got a game to cover tomorrow. He goes, well, yeah, okay, but I'm just going to be sitting around, so see see at the stadium tomorrow. And so he went out, and he stayed up practically all night and then got to the ballpark, and the ball was between his spikes, and he <laughs> wound up pitching the only perfect game in, in World Series history. So wow. who knew? You know, it's like this is the, uh, you know, the, the, this, is, this is what happens. And I told Snipker the story coming off the podium, and we were just laughing about it. You know, he's an old-time baseball guy, and as I wrote in the article, you know, I asked him and pulled him to the side, you know, coming out of one of the games at Dodger Stadium, and asked him how much interference he has from the front office, and he said, well, we have everybody in baseball operations is involved in this. It's a team thing, but I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. Right. And that's a big thing. You know, I, I think there are plenty of guys who have to do things that they don't want to do. Now, without any firsthand knowledge of what went on with with the St. Louis situation, I, I believe philosophical differences means that, you know, still didn't want to do what Mozilak wanted him to do. You know, there was just a, uh, a difference of opinion of how to run the team on the field. And so when you have that, if you're a baseball operations department and you want your manager to be in total control with what you're doing, right on the same page, you're going to go out and get somebody now who's going to do that. You know, I, I think Dusty's situation in Houston was much different because, you know, you came off Lunau, you're bringing in, I think if I remember correctly, they hired Dusty before they hired the general manager, right? Yes. So, I mean, it, so it, they realized that they had to have somebody with major, you know, props, and a career, not only, you know, on the field as a manager, but on the field as a player and, you know, the, and who had experience with a number of teams in a number of situations. And I mean, you know, this is a guy who, who was able to manage Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent together, you know, hmm. and get them to the World Series. So, and he, you know, and manage, you know, disparate groups of people in, uh, you know, Chicago and Cincinnati. And Washington, you know, and, and a win everywhere, go to the playoffs everywhere. I'll tell you a story, you know, uh, I wound up, uh, you know, really, you know, despising the, the way the Reds handled the situation with Dusty after he had the mini strokes. They kept him around for another year. They were won 90 games. 
either they didn't make the playoffs or they they got knocked out in the first round. I don't remember which. You know, uh, you know, and and uh, you know they were they fired Dusty and replaced him with Brian Price, who was a terrific pitching coach and also a great guy, but they wound up 50, 60 games under five hundred during the whole time Brian Price was the manager with with a similar group of players. And really what happened there was, and I know from Jay Bruce and a bunch of guys who were there, they had so much respect and love for Dusty that they could never get into a situation where they could play with their heads on straight for Brian Price. And, you know, there was a day when I was at Petco Park in San Diego and Dusty and his wife, the Reds were in town, Dusty and his wife, came to, to to visit the Reds for the first time after he got fired. And he was in the stands behind home plate as the Reds came out to take batting practice. And the entire Reds team came out of the dugout and went into the stands behind home plate in empty Petco Park at the time. Mm-hmm. And they all sat around talking with Dusty and commiserating with Dusty and having a great time with Dusty. They could, they, they loved the guy, you know? And so he was the perfect guy to bring in to the Astros after that situation with with the sign stealing and you know whatever you want to say about it how you feel about it you know i'm not one of these big you know real uh you know redemption you know guys where you know somebody they make you make a mistake and then you shouldn't be you should be held accountable accountable for it things should be done should more have been done in that situation with the astros there couldn't be because, you know, the, the union would not allow the players to be sanctioned for it. So so they gave them, uh, you know, like, you know, basically cover to talk to Major League Baseball without fear of, of, of any sort of punishment. And then they, you know, were in a situation that those players were going to have to live with it after it was all over. And people were going to be upset that they didn't get punished. You know, no. that Luna got punished. AJ got punished. You know, Luna is no longer in baseball and pro- probably won't be back in. You know, that Crane got fined $2 million. They lost draft picks. But Rick Dusty was the perfect guy to come into that situation and tell, you know, the Bergman and Altuves and Koreas of the world in there, hey, look, we've got a great team here. Let's move on from this. And I'll have your back. But, you know, there are not that many managers who have that kind of gravitas or leeway to do that kind of thing. And if it wasn't for that situation, I doubt Dusty would have ever gotten back in baseball under the conditions where most baseball operations departments want their managers to manage the team now. Hey, let me ask you this. Do... I know, I know you said the analytics department has a has a lot to do with the lineup card and kind of planning out the game. Do you know if they ever call the dugout and make decisions for the managers? Because I know as fans, we watch the games, you know, and we're like, why did Dusty do this? Why did he put this guy in? You know, and you just don't you can't understand the moves that they make, but you can't really blame the managers for a lot of moves. Right. Because a lot of it's not their decision. Okay, you know, I think there are rules pretty much that have been put into place since this whole Astro fiasco where, you know, you cannot have contact with anybody out of the dugout during a game. 
Okay. You can't have can't have people. You know, you can use iPads. You know, for analytical use during the game, for video, for a whole bunch of other things. You know, you can have all the all the numbers and tendencies look downloaded into 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 everybody's individual iPads. But those iPads can't have any sort of contact with the other okay. iPads dugout or anybody else outside of the dugout. And then you had the whole Apple Watch thing, if you remember too, even preceding the Astros, where yeah. the Red Sox Yankees were 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 basically dinged for using Apple Watches to uh, contact people outside. So I mean, you know, there have been some things like. You get somebody sitting by the dugout. Is that guy from the dugout, you know, interfacing, you know, with with somebody at the edge of the dugout, giving them information? You know, they have security down there. They're on this. They have cameras on it now. This is not, you know, a, a practice. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think no. They're okay. not dictating. Nobody's dictating what going on, what's going on in the field as the game has transpired. Baseball has pretty much shut that down. And, okay, and, you know, so but, so but but the thing is to to further answer your question, right. this is what happens. You know, you have a, you know a group of baseball operations people, and there are meetings upon meetings all day long before a game starts. You know, I feel bad almost to the point where for the managers that you know they have to you know they have their meetings with baseball ops. They have to do their community orientation things and go out into the community or people come to the stadium they have to deal with them too they have to deal with us before the game and after the game they have to work with the players every player has got an individual program that they have to work on now there's no team program everything is worked out for a player and you've got to understand this their nutrition their their workouts you know their approach to the game and then it changes, you know, for pitchers and and, and uh, hitters based on the pitcher they're facing in that game or the hitters they're facing in that game. So there are individual, you know, programs for each of these players every day and overall that of, of things they want them to work on and how they get to the point where, you know, there are muscle programs for people who do more lateral movement than front moving movement. Or have to combine the two for pitchers you know they're they have it broken down to such a degree that that you can look at video and if your arm angle is is down a quarter of a, of, 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 a, of a turn from where it usually is it may explain why you're not getting the same velocity on your fastball so they want you to bring your back your arm back up i mean or the way your fingers are, are, are positioned on the ball when you're throwing a, a three speed, a four seam or a two seam fastball, and why you're not getting the RPMs on it, you know, or, or how to increase the RPMs. And now they're working with a tackier baseball to come out of the box so that they don't have to rub it up anymore and there's more consistency and the ball won't slip out of pitchers' hands. I mean, this is as, you know, really, you know, complicated and, and intrusive as, as you might. And what I'm explaining to you probably isn't even the half of it. Because I've never been allowed to sit down in somebody's front office and watch it happening on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm just telling you what I'm getting from experience and yeah. what other people have told me goes on.
So okay. you have all this mapped out, and then you get to the seventh inning of a ball game, and if the, the if the manager is told that in the seventh inning, based on the tendencies today and how we've mapped this game out, you have to go with a reliever A rather than reliever B in this situation. Mm. If he goes with reliever B, then A, even if it works out, he's going to have to go back to his baseball ops department and explain why. Let so me ask you this. Um, I, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but have you talked to any players? Like, how do, how, how do the players feel knowing that they have a manager who is practically, you know, the boss of the team during the game? But how do they feel knowing that he's not really making all of the decisions? It's all kind of planned out for them. First of all, you know, I don't think they care. It's, it's you know, basically the system they have to play within today. Everybody, you know, mo most people, players in Major League Baseball, the great amount of them are constantly playing for their jobs. You know, the guys who have the big contracts and when they're not hurt are in the lineup playing every day. You know, that's the small percentage of players in baseball. If you mm -hmm. have 1,200 players on Major League rosters at any given time, 80% of those players are playing for their jobs. So whatever they're told to do and whatever they're brought up for the minors or they make it through spring training and they're on the big club, they're going to do whatever they're told to do by management to stay there because it's, it's such a short career. I mean, people don't understand how short a career it really is and that the majority of major league players, you know, don't have much shelf life in the major leagues. So, A, they're not complaining about it, and B, they're certainly not going to complain about it to any sort of writer on the record. And, mm -hmm. and most of them get as, you know, as asides from people. And we haven't even been in the clubhouses the last couple of years because of COVID. So we're not even getting, you know, the full detail of what's going on down there anymore. It's all controlled in either Zoom sessions or press conference settings. And it's a very rarity where you can pull a player aside on the field or ask a PR guy to get you a particular player. I mean, they will, but I mean, it, it's a completely controlled situation as opposed to two, three years ago before COVID, you know, when you could sidle up to the backup catcher or middle inning reliever. And those were the guys that you would get all your information from because they, they, they were happy to talk to you while the current was going towards the, the more name players in the clubhouse and they tell you what's going on. You had to have those relationships. It was really, really important, especially if you're a beat writer, you know, it's, uh, you know, my, I, I, I've always talked with Tony Clark, who's the executive director of the union now. And when he was a union rep and, and tied in and he was uh, on the bench, coming off the bench with the Diamondbacks and the Padres late in his career. And he and I developed a good, really good relationship. I mean, I'd always grab Tony to find out what the latest was that was going on with the union and with labor because he was understood it. He was interested in it. He had insight. If I didn't have access to the locker room, I would have never developed the relationship I have now with Tony Clark. So, you know, this is the situation we're kind of in as reporters, and really, I wouldn't want to be a day-to-day -day beat reporter on any team at this point with the amount mm -hmm. of control that Major League Baseball and the teams
can exert over the media. So in closing, is uh, Major League Baseball manager a desirable job these days? Well, let's put it this way. There's 30 of them, right? So it's always going to be a, a desirable job. But I think you do get to the point where, you know, like what's happened with the Mets in New York at this point is mm-hmm. that such a long time for them to hire Billy Epler. You know, he had to be, you know, way down the list before they got to him because nobody else wanted or would take the job or they weren't. They've, they After interviewing people, they realized it wasn't going to be a fit for them. And so now you have a, you're going to be looking for a manager there. You know, you have a team that spends a lot of money, but there's going to be a lot of control from Steve Cohn in ownership through the baseball operations department all the way down that you're going to have to deal with. And so you have the biggest problem I find for the manager is that when things go wrong, and as I said in the article, the manager has to sell it to the players. They have to sell it to the media. These guys, nobody's stupid. When things go wrong, and they, which they are always going to go wrong in baseball, it's such a high failure sport, particularly offensively. I mean, you know, you look at it and you go, you know, a great hitter in baseball at this point succeeds 25% to 30% of the time at the plate. If you get above 30%, you're talking about all-time great category. I mean, mm-hmm. Ted Williams was 341. Tony Quinn was 338. Nobody else is even close from this era of baseball. You have to go back to the teens and 20s for for the Ty Cobbs and Roger Hornsby's and those guys who are above those kind of hitters. Even guys like Rod Carew and George Brett, they were in the 320s. So they weren't as high. That That's 20 points off, off of Williams and, and pretty close to Gwen. So those are the all-time greats. If you're 20 to 25% of the time, then, you know, basically you're barely in the major leagues and anything below 20%, you can't play in the major leagues. So no. that's a huge failure rate for everybody. And then you add shifts, add tendencies, add, you know, like the analytics and all the things that they do to make it even tougher on hitters. And there's going to be a lot of failure, you know, in all of these games. So the, the manager then has to explain that failure, why it didn't work, it was dictated by management. They had to sell it to us. And then after a while you go, you know, look to Doc Roberts, who I've known since he was a player. It's like my eyes crossed because it's like your credibility is getting shot here trying to explain this. And and as I said, the first time, the, the, the next time a general manager comes down to a post-game press conference to explain what happened on the field, that's going to be the first time. Yeah. So the manager, yeah, the manager is on the firing line all day, every day. You have to have like a cast iron stomach to be able to do the job. And to say, is it a desirable job? I don't think it's as a desirable job as it was when I came up covering baseball, you know, with the Dick Williamses and Gene Mox and Billy Martins. And, you know, they ruled the roost. And if they, they didn't, if anybody tried to tell them what to do, they would kick them out of the kick them out of the clubhouse, curse them out, and and tell them what, what you know what 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 uh, that that they weren't going to do what they wanted them to do, and they would mm-hmm. keep their job. 
because that's the way baseball was at that point. And it's come, you know, way around. In fact, you know, Roberts asked me during the the playoffs, because what do you think that guys like, you know, Mock or Williams or Martin would have ever allowed all these analytic things from the club, from the baseball officer kid down to, the, to his office? And would they have accepted it? And I said, no. But I mean, you have Mike Socia, who, you know, was a, a traditional manager when he came up. And the game evolved over the 15, 20 years. He was managing the Angels. And we had a long talk about it. And he said, look, I'll use, uh, you know, what all this information that they give me. Because now you're not doing things by your gut. You're doing things based on information that you have. You know there's a reason to do things and a reason not to do things. But he wasn't told when and or not to do things. And when Jerry DePoto came along there and tried to do that, there was a huge clash. So, I mean, you know, it's a tough job and not a great job to have anymore. Like I said, it's a middle management job, but there's only 30 of them, and you're always going to get guys to do these jobs. Yeah. All right, Barry, that's all I have. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you having me. It was a great discussion. Thanks, Rob. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Astros Baseball. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be alerted when there's a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.